If you did not get one of these uh, sermon outlines on the way in, you should run get it now to really help you follow through the message this morning. I trust you got one of these. I know it sets a record for Wallace, sorry. <laughs> well, our, our verse this morning is one verse. It's Ecclesiastes 3.1. For everything there is a season, a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born, and a time to die. There was this avid golfer who ran into an angel, and he said, good, an angel, I have a question for you. Will there be golf in heaven? And the angel said, I have good news and bad news. The good news is, there is in fact golf in heaven. The bad news is, you have a tea time tomorrow morning. <laughs> that kind of captures the way we feel about death. I know eventually I'm going to die, just not anytime soon or ever. Golf on earth is just fine. In fact, the technical word that I believe captures the way most of us feel about death is the word ambivalent. That's a fancy word that means having conflicting positive and negative emotions or thoughts at the same time about something. I think that's true of most of us. And for you, it may even be worse than ambivalent. It may be fear. I suspect that there's a wide spectrum among us of how fearful we are at the prospect of dying. I can tell you this as a pastor who's done many funerals. I can see in the faces, particularly of people who don't know Jesus Christ, I can see in their faces at funerals a fear, a terror of death. I can read their minds. They're thinking, I am glad that's not me, and I hope that is never me. What's absolutely wonderful is that the Bible addresses our fears of death. It's very realistic. And I'll be honest with you, some of you are thinking right now, you've got to be kidding. What a sermon to start the new year on. Death? A 42-page handout on death? Really, Mike? Have you lost your mind? Actually, I believe this can be immensely helpful to you. Because until you are at peace about dying, you'll never really be at peace about your living. And this is why the Bible is so incredibly helpful. It is really the one book that tells you why you're going to die and what you can do about it. So what began as a seven-point sermon at a homily at a funeral on what we know about death turned into a 
How many is there? 40-point message for you all. I'm not going to do all this this morning. And, you know, I had Chris produce this for you because I hope this becomes a resource for you. Study this. Look at the scriptures. I can't possibly say everything there is to say about the variety of scriptures that are in here. But, and incidentally, if you, if you take it home with you, bring it back next week. Or if you just want to leave it on your seat, we'll recycle them for next week. But here we go. Crazy Mike. 40 points. What do we know about death? And I've summarized for you before I get to the first point. This was incredibly helpful to me personally because as a Bible believer and a Bible reader and a follower of Jesus for four decades, I never really knew how to crystallize how the Bible approaches this subject. Because, you know, on the one hand, you hear Paul saying, I can't wait to die and be with Jesus. On the other, the psalmist says, deliver me from death. You get these conflicting messages. So it is the word ambivalent. So look, look closely with me at, I think this is a faithful way to summarize this ambivalence we feel. From the perspective of what God made you and life to be, Death is a terrible, unnatural intrusion. You can scratch out the word thing. I've changed the sense this one to press. An intrusion that we disdain. I am validating your disdain of death from one perspective. From another perspective, this is the other side of the ambivalence. From the perspective of what awaits believers for all eternity after they die, death is a necessary thing that we need not fear. Okay, if I can improve upon that, let me know after the sermon. We'll insert it next week. So here we go. Janice is my timekeeper. I said 30 minutes, tell me when I need to wrap it up. I have no idea how far I'm going to get into the handout. Number one. We instinctively hate death. And that explains to you why in the Bible, when funerals are taking place, loud weeping, crying. Jesus, at the, de- at the, at the grave of his, of his friend Lazarus, we read in John 11 that when Jesus saw Mary weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit. That word literally means to snort with anger. Jesus snorted with anger and was greatly troubled. The verb means to shudder, and then it says Jesus wept. It wasn't crocodile tears. He burst into crying. He hated death. Interesting that when Paul finishes his ministry, his last ministry to the elders in Ephesus, he calls them to, uh, to himself as he's going on his way, and, and they know they're never going to see him again in this life. They have a good doctrine of glory. Clearly, Paul's taught him, we're all going to be worshiping Jesus together. We're all going to be together in glory. But here's what Acts 20, 37 says. There was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul, kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken that they would not see his face again. Well, they're going to see him in glory, but on this earth, this was the last time they'd see Paul. They were crying. 
hated the idea that they'd never see him again. No one likes to lose a loved one. I mean, the nature of close relationship is you get knit in a way that when a loved one dies and they're ripped from you, it is disdainful. That's why in your spirit and mind, survival, fleeing danger is a human impulse. When you go to battle, you go to battle to lose or to win. Because of this innate hatred of death that we have. If you're familiar with the Psalms, over and over again, the psalmists are crying out for deliverance or they're thanking God for a deliverance from danger. Psalm 56 is just one example. You've delivered my soul from death, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. That's a good thing that he got delivered from death. Even Paul expresses, the same Paul who says to die is gain and to be with Christ, that same Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4.8, we're afflicted in every way but not crushed. That would be bad. Perplexed but not driven to despair. That would be bad. Persecuted but not forsaken. That would be bad. Struck down but not destroyed. (laughs) First point, we hate death. And we hate death because, number two, we weren't made for it. Death is not the way it's supposed to be. Death is an unnatural intrusion into the perfectly pristine and life-teeming world that God created. There was no hint of death in the Garden of Eden before sin entered. Paul tells us in Romans 5.12, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. Death is here because sin is here. It's not natural. None of us die of natural causes. It was never meant to be. When when your spirit is separated from your body at death, that is not natural. Ecclesiastes 12, 7, the dust returns to the earth as it was, the spirit returns to God who gave it. It's not the way it was supposed to be. You were created to be inseparably and eternally body and soul. Now the Christian faith says you're going to return to that at the final resurrection. The final resurrection is going to make things the way they're supposed to be body, soul, inseparable without sin, the prospect of death in the presence of God. That explains why, number three, many people fear death. It's kind of hard to imagine. It's intimidating. All you and I have ever known is conscious life. Job calls death the king of terrors. Hebrews 2.14 speaks of the necessity of the incarnation, Jesus Christ taking on our flesh for the purpose of destroying death and the devil. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, Jesus himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Wonderful irony. Jesus destroys the power of death by himself dying. We'll get to more on that later in the study. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. The fear of death is a kind of slavery. It governs you. It it weighs you down, doesn't it? We know that. All of us at some level have struggled with the fear of death. Satan keeps that hanging over the human constitution. It's a kind of slavery. Jesus appeared. Look. This is the most powerful thing you could say about a human being. He came to deliver people from death and to destroy the devil? What? If you're not a follower of Jesus, you don't consider yourself a believer in God or the Bible, think about what a stunning claim that is, that at least it makes 
it makes a good use of your time at least exploring the claims of Jesus Christ. Whoever claimed to be able to destroy death and the devil and to free you from the fear of death. That's an incredible claim to power. But beloved, don't miss what an indicator this fear of death may be. Point number four, the fear of death is in part a subconscious realization that we will all face a terrifying judgment one day. See, fear of death may have underlying it what you may not be conscious of, but nonetheless is deep in the human soul, and that is, as Hebrews 10, 26 writes, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. God is a consuming fire. We all know that in our heart of hearts. And so fear of death can drive you to address that. Now I want to make this point, number five. You might say, I don't fear death, and I don't believe in Jesus. It's possible to have no fear of death, but possess what I'm calling a presumptuous false confidence. Jesus got into a very, very strong war of words with some of the Jewish leaders. It's recorded in John 8. And he says, they said to him, we're not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. In other words, we're absolutely confident we're right with God. Confident. I'm so right with God, of course I'm going to go to heaven when I die. They're absolutely certain they're right with God. Here's what Jesus says. If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father the devil, and you do the will of your father the devil. People with great confidence when they die, they're going to heaven. Turns out they're of their father the devil. I mean, that's, a, that's an awful place to be, isn't it? So where is your confidence in the face of the fear of death? Point six, let your fears of death motivate you to dissect them. The fear of death should drive you to fear God. Right? You think about dying and death and whatnot. You see somebody else die. Let that become an occasion. To, do I really fear the Lord? See, there's something worse than death. Hell. That's what Jesus said. Matthew 10, 28, don't fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy, destroy both soul and body in hell. Beloved, God is the one to be revered. God is the one to be honored. God is the one who is due all reverence and awe and worship. Any death you witness is an occasion to ask yourself, is God getting that from my life? Seven, death is the penalty for sin. Sin is the reason death is here. Ezekiel 18.4, the soul that sins shall die. Look, if you never sinned, you'd never die. If you, die, if you sin, you die. That's simple. God threatened Adam and Eve in the garden, Genesis 2.16. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may eat of uh, every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. 
That was the promise that the moment they sinned against God, they would come under spiritual death. They would die spiritually, and ultimately they would die physically. That's why from this point on in history, every human being is not only born spiritually dead, but is born they were, they're going to die. In spite of the fact that God created you to live, because you sin, you will die. Later in Genesis 3.19, by the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to the dust you shall return. Death is a judgment, a constant reminder that God made you for better. He made you for himself, and sin is we'd rather live for ourselves than for God. Let every death you witness be a testimony, be a driving message. I'll never thrive in my life thwarting God's purposes. Never thrive. And I will die because I have sinned. But Paul says in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. That's the point we're making, but it's not the end of the story. There's really good news here. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. What does sin pay? Death. What does Jesus give as a free gift? Eternal life. There couldn't be a more clear invitation, actually a command for you to believe the promise that Jesus will save you from death by his life, through his cross, by the power of his resurrection, it is a gift, beloved. You take the gift. You receive it. This is God's promise. I'll save you if you believe in my son and take my son. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. No one needs to leave this auditorium this morning wondering, how do I escape death? That's the answer. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. It's a gift. You can't earn it. You don't deserve it. He gives it to all who ask. The only thing you need is to feel your need of him. Number eight, death has a perfect track record. Romans 5, 17, for if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through the one man, so death is reigning now over the earth. It's kind of a sovereign. All of our deaths, if Jesus doesn't come again in our lifetime, our death is inevitable. Death is the meanest bully on the block. He never loses a fight. Well, two people in history, Enoch and Elijah. But they're functionally dead. They're no longer working on the earth, as it were. Death has a perfect track record. We're all going to die. Nine, death is final. You only die once. When death makes a reservation... It's a one-way ticket. No one comes back from the dead. Hold that thought. <laughs> Who do you know that's come back from the dead to tell you what it's like? Except for Jesus. Yeah. So David lamenting the baby born to Bathsheba, 2 Samuel 12, 23. But now he's dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back? I will go to him. He will not return to me. Psalm 49, 12. Man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beasts which perish. Death is final. You only die once. Hebrews 9, 27. Just as it is appointed for all men to die once, and after that comes judgment. No such thing as reincarnation. Death, 
judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him, because he is the resurrected victor over death. Jesus Christ, reigning over this earth, will come again to take us to himself. One man in history had a glimpse into paradise and lived to tell us about it. That was the Apostle Paul. He makes a veiled allusion to it in 2 Corinthians 12, 3. I wish he told us more. He doesn't. Here's what he says. I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body. I don't know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. In other words, paradise was unspeakably glorious. Wish he'd have told us more. Death is final, beloved. And number 10, the obvious in nature perennially warns us that we too are frail and die. The scripture says, go out and look at the grass. See the grass? It's kind of brown. What was it this summer? Green. So the apostle Peter, picking up on Isaiah 40, says, all flesh, your body and mine. All flesh, your body and mine. All flesh is like grass, and its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. A lot more to say about the word of the Lord. I'm going to preach on 1 Peter this semester, so we'll get to that in a little bit. The point I want you to make is, I want to make is that that part of you, now some of you are younger, you haven't experienced this kind of groaning, but those of you of a certain age, you groan as you get older. You begin to fall apart. Raise your hand if, if you've hit that age. See, some of us and the others are lying. <laughs> no. You, see, there, look, all of us would tell you there is a longing in us to stay vital, a longing to be healthy, to be young, to be mobile. Billions and billions and trillions of dollars are spent on our culture trying to stay young, right? What is that all about? It's this internal desire to live we groan. I love what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. For while we're still in this tent, a metaphor for the physical body, while we're in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we'd be unclothed, he does not want to get rid of the body, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He wants a resurrection body. All of us do. What in your life is an indicator of that? Paul says that the creation has been groaning together the pangs of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for what? What does your handout say we're waiting eagerly for? The adoption as sons, comma, what does that mean? The redemption of our bodies. Christianity is not Gnosticism. What counts as the spirit material is bad. We are waiting the resurrection of our bodies. That's the way it's supposed to be. Not bodies that get sick, not bodies that sin, not bodies that die. Indestructible bodies, the one Jesus has, is going to be your body. That's what Paul says we're groaning for. Number 11, at death, your eternal destiny is unalterable. No one gets a second chance. Some people think this way. Oh, you know, I don't know when I'm going to die. I'll just live for myself. When I get around to it, I'll get religious. As if it's bad to know the living God. 
someone shake you out of your insanity. The rich story, the rich man and Lazarus, Jesus told, besides this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed that in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. The chasm's fixed. You don't die and get another chance. It's appointed for all to die once and then comes judgment. And it's important to know this. No one's going to die and stand before God and go, I had no idea. The famous atheist Bertrand Russell was asked, you know, he wrote a book called Why I'm Not a Christian, basically, because he said all there is in the universe is molecules in motion. And how did he know that? That's the only presupposition for his worldview, but that's another point. He was asked, what are you going to die? What's going to happen if you die and sin before God? What are you going to say to God? He's going to say, not enough evidence, not enough evidence, not enough evidence. Not according to Paul. Paul writes in Romans 1, God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. There's no excuses. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. No one's going to say, I had no idea. Now, if you're struggling with the existence of God, you have real scientific, philosophical, historical questions about does God exist? Let's talk. Let's work on those. Let's look at that. Do something about that. Number 12, the time of your death is unknown to you as a rule. Ecclesiastes 9.12, for man does not know his time. There's some exceptions. If, if you go to war, you... actually I was talking to a soldier recently at dinner, and uh, just fascinating to hear him talk about how he just knew at any time in warfare he could have been killed and radically changed. He's a Christian, radically changed his attitude towards death. It's very, very interesting. Michael Bartle, am I allowed to say that? Are you here, Michael? Talk to Michael about that. Very interesting. But it's never an excuse to be a hedonist. Look at Luke 12. This is the fool. He says, I'll say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. God said to him, fool, this night you required as of you, and the things you prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. What's that require you to be asking of your life? As you look ahead at your years, middle life, thinking about how to spend the rest of your years, what does that require of you? Where are you being rich? Toward God? Toward yourself? However, the date of your death is set by God. And I find great comfort in this. God's sovereign. He willed my existence. He's numbered my days. He set the date of my death. Does that give me an excuse to be reckless and crazy driver and not take good care of my body? Of course not. There's a responsibility as a human being to be a good steward, to be wise. Psalm 104.29, when you hide your face, they're dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. One day God's going to take away my breath. He knows the day. He's already said it. He set the day of my birth. He set the day of my death. David said in Psalm 139, your eyes form my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was not one of them. 
Does that comfort you? God's absolutely sovereign over your existence from start to finish. So what should you do about it? Sit around and speculate when you're going to die? No. Be circumspect about your life. Moses taught us this in Psalm 90. Teach us to number our days that we may present to you a, a, a heart of wisdom. Number our days doesn't mean try to figure out when you're going to die. It means be circumspect about everything about your life. It's all important. Every second of your life is important. Everything you do is important. Everything you do counts for eternity. Teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. You could be reading the chapter of Proverbs that corresponds with the day of the month if you wanted to present to God a heart of wisdom. Just an advertisement, shameless. 14, death ends your race. It is deliverance day. Paul writes, and he knew he was about to die. When he's writing 2 Timothy, he knew the end was near. I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. Faith. Does that sound like a person with a tremendous amount of satisfaction with their life? Yes, it does. It sounds that way to me. Why? Because he's living for something bigger than himself. That's where his satisfaction, that's where his confidence comes from. He's living for something bigger than himself. And you get a hint at this when he teaches the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, I don't account my life of any value as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry I've received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of Jesus. He's living for Jesus. And therefore, he is not overly concerned for the kinds of concerns that trip us up unnecessarily, wastefully trying to prolong our days. He understands that his life belongs to Jesus so that, and Jesus can do whatever he wants with it. How many of us wake up in the morning, I, be, I belong to you, Jesus, you can do whatever you want with my life. 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Start with the price. At the cross, Jesus, you suffered and died for me. Your precious blood has cleansed me of all sin for all time. We'll remember that when we come to the table. I'm yours. And that's a lot more freeing than having something to prove. You, yourself, your spouse, your kids, your friends, your roommates. We're going to end on that note. I'll pick up at 15 next time. Is that a happy note? I got Jesus dying for you. He'll raise you on the last day. So we'll pick up at 15 next time. Let me pray for us. We're thankful that your word, Lord, uh, has so much to say about death because it's obvious, it's inevitable. It's, we're like the grass out there. You can hardly move in this life and not be confronted with the obvious. All around us, things are dying. And we worship you this morning as the God of life. You created this world to work livingly, vibrantly, without death, Glory to you. Death is here because of our sin. It's our fault. And we're going to die because we've sinned. Thank you. Thank you that there's a way to live forever. 
and face our judgment unafraid, as we already sang this morning, in Jesus Christ, the one who died the death our sins deserve on the cross, the one the grave could not hold, he rose victorious, so his victory is our victory. May we live, Lord, in our hearts with that sense of sure victory, of seeing you face to face, facing our maker unafraid, but with tremendous joy and anticipation. Teach us to live with this ambivalence at one and the same time, hating death, and even more, the reason it's here, our sin, and yet with confidence that the best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. That's often hard for me to believe. It escapes me, Lord. I'm distracted with the things of this earth. The best is yet to come. Teach us that. Help us to with one anothering, convince one another of the glory of being with you forever. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, our hymn.